everyone and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I am Professor Selena Bartlett and today I'm joined by Dr. Simran Malhotra, who's a triple board certified physician in internal medicine, hospice and palliative care and lifestyle medicine. She's also a certified wellness and health coach. She's currently working part-time. She's also a mother of two children. She's working part-time as an inpatient and palliative care physician in Maryland in the United States. And she was named one of the top doctors in 2019 and 2020 by the Baltimore Magazine for Palliative Medicine. We're very lucky to have her here and her story is quite remarkable. Her personal story is that she's a BRCA1 purviva, which means She's someone that discovered she had a mutation in a gene. Um, and she did this because she has a strong family history of breast and female reproductive cancers. So unlike, and, and fortunately for her, and unlike some other people that I know personally, or she knows, she underwent and chose to take on a bilateral mastectomy and total hysterectomy in 2020 at the age of 32. She's what we call lucky in the sense that she's medically trained and has all of the tools in the kit to understand, one, the consequences, but two, the risk factors of not undergoing this. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we look forward to hearing about your story and helping other people understand um, all the uh, tools and opportunities they also can have. Thanks for having me, Selena. I appreciate it. Uh, your story is quite remarkable. I, I can't believe how lucky I am to have found you, actually. Do you want to tell a little bit, the audience, somewhat your story? I think they would be really, would love to hear it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, as you said, um, the basics and my number one role is that I'm a mom of two kids, uh, four and almost six. Um, to fur babies and um, originally Canadian. I met my husband who's also French Canadian while doing my residency here in Maryland. Um, so I was initially trained in internal medicine and went on to do a fellowship in hospice and palliative care and more recently um, ended up getting the board certification for lifestyle medicine, um, which really happened after I became the patient um, as a way to empower myself um, and um, you know, also the health and wellness coaching um, certification that you mentioned. Um, I am what you call a BRCA1 previvor, as you mentioned. So for people that may not be familiar with that, um, a previvor is essentially somebody that is at a high risk of cancer um, from a, a genetic predisposition. So the BRCA1 mutation is the most common hereditary um, genetic mutation that puts women at high risk for particularly breast and ovarian cancer, along with some others. Um, it became more famous when Angelina Jolie uh, came out um, several years ago and said that she has that mutation. Now they've discovered several other genes that also predispose women to uh, breast and ovarian cancers, but BRCA, BRCA1 and 2 are probably the most common and also the ones that carry the highest risk. Um, so as you mentioned, I have a very, very strong family history. Um, I, as I was telling you just before we got on, I have about to date now that I've counted nine women 
who have had either breast or ovarian cancer on my mom's uh, side of the family, dating back to my great grandmother. Um, the youngest of which was around the age of 32, 31, I think, when she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Um, six of them have passed now. Um, and my mom herself is a two-time breast cancer survivor. Um, she was first diagnosed at the age of 33 and then again at the age of 49. Um, so how I came to find out that I carried this genetic mutation was when I was 26. Um, I'm now 34 and essentially, um, you know, somebody had been diagnosed in my family at that time and things didn't go so well. I was already in my medical training. And basically one of my colleagues had mentioned like, you know, you should really consider getting tested, get your mom tested again, because initially her, her genetic mutation results were negative at the age of 33. So they've made so many advancements in, in genomics and genetic testing. So we got her retested. We found out she carried the BRCA1 mutation. And subsequently I got tested and found that I carried it. So I was 26 during my, uh, in the last year, my internal medicine um, residency about to get married, decided to get tested so that my husband could get a sense of what he was getting into. Um, and I was getting ready to start my fellowship in hospice and palliative care. And essentially, you know, found out I carried the mutation, met with a, a oncology team and they were just kind of like, you know, based on your family history, you need to have preventative, or at least the, the recommendation is to have preventative risk-reducing surgeries. Um, and in, for me, it was by the age of 33. Um, and the numbers, the statistics that they had given me were astounding, right? So for the average woman, the risk of breast cancer is about a one in eight or 12% in her lifetime. For me, based on my history, it was an over 80% lifetime risk of breast cancer and about 40 to 60% risk of ovarian cancer. Um, so for me, it was um, between my family history, those statistics, knowing that I was gonna start a family and have children with my husband. And then as a palliative care physician, as I was mentioning, you know, having cared for so many young women at the end of life, um, many with breast and ovarian cancers, some with these genetic mutations, it, I've always kind of looked at this as a blessing in disguise, um, the ability to do something proactively for my health and my well, the best chance at being here, you know, for years to come for my children. Um, so I, yeah, ultimately ended up having the risk reducing surgeries, a bilateral mastectomy. I didn't get reconstruction um, and a total hysterectomy, putting myself into surgical menopause um, at the height of COVID basically in September of 2020 while being a palliative care physician. So um, yeah, I was just telling someone earlier today, I'm not sure that I have entirely processed that year yet. <laughs> oh, wow, it's not that long ago really either. Oh, no. It must have been so quite that, a traumatic time for you, especially of having had two children already as well on top of that. Yeah, my kids at the time were 18 months and almost three. So it was it was a really tough time. And I married, my husband's actually an intensive care physician. So oh my COVID God. was quite, quite interesting for us. Wow. Um, I think the audience might want to understand. I mean, I think you you are lucky that you've got that gift of knowledge to be able to make these really difficult decisions in some, in retrospect, they're not that difficult when you look at the probabilities, 
it seems really mm -hmm. clear, but actually making those decisions isn't, is it? It's really hard. Yeah. And I, and I think that the, the, the beauty I always see of knowing about your genetic mutation is that versus somebody that gets a diagnosis of cancer, you know, after that diagnosis, everything just goes so fast from like diagnosis to uh, you know, imaging to treatment to like, it's just boom, boom, boom. And, and that's what I saw with my mom. It's just like such a frenzy where you don't even have time to, you know, process the diagnosis or really, you know, take time to make those decisions. Um, and what I found being in many of the support groups now, what I found is that a lot of cancer people that have gone through cancer, they end up processing everything that they went through after like in survivorship like once they've done treatment and gone through everything that's when they start processing but i think the benefit of pre-vivorship is that okay you're given this diagnosis of a genetic mutation and you have time you have time to think you have time to talk to other people about their experiences you have time to weigh your risks and your benefits so for me like i was 26 when i found out about the mutation then for years, basically, I did high risk screening. So I did, you know, my I saw my breast surgeon and they did MRIs. Um, but then I had many years to, you know, think about like what is it that I want. Um, and I didn't end up having surgery till thirty two. And what I found is that emotionally and mentally, it was such a better recovery for me than I would have thought because I had time to grieve beforehand like i'm not saying it was easy you know it's not easy for any 22 year old to say goodbye to their uh, you know their womanhood you know really but but i, I it gave me the time to do the things that i needed to do like for example i you know i i did um i did some i got some uh memoir pieces done of my breasts like i got a, a painting i did I wrote some letters to myself. I got um, a photo shoot, which is something I never thought I would do. But looking back, it, it's just such a beautiful gift that I have. And it's just done wonders for my emotional health. And I just don't, I think once you're, a, a, once you're diagnosed with cancer, it's so hard to, to, to process all of that, right? You don't have the time. So pre-vivorship and finding out about your genetic mutation really gives you the gift of time amazing story and amazing choices uh what i was also interested in your story is did you choose to become a palliative care physician because of your mum and your other family members is that how that happened so interestingly so I'm, i have my background is south asian um and i grew up in canada and most I, I was born and raised in canada but most of my mom's family is back in india um, so interestingly, my mom was first diagnosed at 33, and she was the first person that we kind of knew of that got cancer in her family. So it kind of got chalked up to just kind of a sporadic, you know, bad luck kind of thing. Um, and then it wasn't until like several years later when I was in residency um, that we found out about this second person and then kind of started to peel back the layers. And my mom's like, oh, I think that person had some sort of stomach cancer or this, you know, stomach cancer, aka ovarian cancer, which I later found out. But like, 
you know, I think um, I didn't really have any intention of going into palliative care because of my family, because I didn't really even know about this family history until my, you know, last year of my internal medicine residency. The reason I decided to go into palliative care was actually because I re recall in my intern year, I had first started out in the ICU and I just remember the distress that so many patients and families were going through sitting at the bedside and feeling like they had no idea what was going on with their loved one, feeling like, you know, they weren't getting the time from the medical team that they needed, you know, and I just saw so much PTSD and trauma. And so palliative care for me was like, just the, it, it just fit my personality so well, because I'm, I'm someone that's like very compassionate and very empathetic. And I want people to understand what's happening. I want them to be able to ask questions and make informed decisions. And, and I didn't even know what palliative care was until I met my husband. And he was like, you know what, you would be really good at palliative care. And then I looked into it and I was like, wow, this is exactly what I envisioned, you know, medicine to be. And it's, it's really just good medicine. It's just that in today's world, we don't have time to practice medicine like that, you know, especially in America, you know, you're for primary care, you're given like 15 minutes for a follow-up, which is silly because you can't do anything in 15 minutes with people who have such complex diseases. Yes. And have you seen, um, what is the number one thing facing people that you would never see in 15 minutes? Very unique perspective um, as a palliative care physician, because I, I see mostly people living with serious and life-threatening illnesses, right? So I see a lot of advanced stage four cancers, advanced heart disease, kidney disease, things like that. And I think when people, and I keep saying this country is because I live in this America, but even globally, I think when people think about um, like palliative care or disease, they're really thinking about these like advanced diseases. But I, in my, in my opinion, we really need to shift our mindset because this current epidemic that we're living in, you know, where, where like 60% of, at least in America, Americans have one chronic illness and 40% have two or more, right? Like things like high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, high cholesterol, these are all the silent kill killers that over time, over many years will lead to the serious illnesses that I ultimately end up taking care of. I think what most people need to understand is that these silent killers, more than 80% of them are related to our lifestyle and they're 100% modifiable and controllable. And so, you know, you don't need to end up with the serious illness sitting with the palliative care doctor talking about hospice. Like there is something that you can do in your everyday life to reduce your risk of the serious illness, which, uh, this, you this know. Is, this is a question that I hadn't, want, I wonder, want to ask though is even in that end stage situation with your now lifestyle medicine hat on and everything, have you been able to convince some people to modify their lifestyle and see that they could cut back from a palliative care back to a more condition of being able to treat their chronic disease by modifying their lifestyle? That is my dream, my friend. That is my dream. Um, 
the challenge is this that most people within medicine and even within the community still don't differentiate between palliative care and hospice and so uh -huh. palliative care is really for anybody who receives a diagnosis of a serious illness right so at the time of diagnosis of coronary artery disease or heart failure or cancer you should be able to get a palliative care consult um however most people don't get a palliative care consult until they're in the several yeah. last you know hours days or weeks of life and so at that point you really have to weigh the risks and yeah. benefits and goals of the patient um and That's so really no not yet stage. <laughs> Yeah, so it really, really is end stage. So, you know, my goal, and I hope to be able to incorporate this in into an outpatient palliative care practice where we're seeing patients more upstream. Um, and this is something that I'm actually hoping to do within my medical system in, in the next year, um, is to do more of a, a, a lifestyle approach. Um, and for us, it's like palliative care is also all about quality of life, right? So even if you can't get these people to reverse their illness. You can get them to live better with a better quality of life and, you know, using intensive or not even intensive, but just therapeutic lifestyle habits to treat, you know, low energy or pain or any symptom that they may have, as opposed to prescribing another pill. Because the reality is when you give them another pill, they're also going to have a side effect and then you're going to chase the side effect with another pill. And that's where, you know, the pill burden increases and then you continue to reduce their quality of life. So that's where I think the benefit of lifestyle really is for our palliative care population. Um, but what you're talking about, there's definitely stories out there. Um, one of the first that I came across when I actually discovered lifestyle medicine was a story of, um, are, are you familiar with Dr. Michael Greger? Um, no, but I just interviewed Jeff Ridiger from um, Harvard, who's right. Okay. Which is in the okay. sim similar vein, really, but different from your approach. But it's just, it all comes down to the same kind of idea. Well, Dr. Michael Greger, his story is fascinating. The first book I picked up when I, in 2015, when I found out about my mutation, and I was like, what can I control when my doctors told me there's nothing I can do because I have a genetic mutation? That wasn't enough for me because there's always something you can do in my mind, right? So I picked up this book. It's called, ironically, it's called How Not to Die um, by Dr. Michael Greger. And the story he shares at the beginning is of his grandmother who was in her late 60s or something, I believe, when she was diagnosed with um, advanced, heart, advanced heart disease and basically sent home on hospice care. And by this time I was in my fellowship. So I was very familiar with this, you know, someone with advanced disease being sent home on hospice, essentially meaning, you know, the doctors believe you may have six months or less to live. Um, however, what she did was she went out West uh, to California and joined this intensive lifestyle program um, and ultimately ended up reversing her heart disease and went on to live another 30 years and died in her nineties. So this to me was just mind blowing because I had not heard anything like this in my training in medical school. Like the idea that lifestyle could re re reverse end-stage disease was mind-blowing to me. And so there are several physicians now, Dr. Dean Ornish, Dr. Codwell Esselstyn, you know, who have done tons of studies on people with significant heart disease showing that intensive lifestyle changes can, you know, re like reverse cardiac 
you know, plaque in the and arteries. Diabetes um, as well, right? Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, cholesterol. In fact, you know, the ripple effect is one of my favorite um, is one of my favorite benefits of adopting positive lifestyle changes because it's like when you start doing things, you started changing the way you eat or the way you move or the way you know adopting certain lifestyle habits. When you start seeing those changes within yourself, the people around you also start noticing. And somehow it just creates this little ripple effect. And then you start seeing these changes in them. And for example, when I met my husband, he was 20 pounds heavier. He was borderline uh, high blood pressure. He had high cholesterol. And then when I found out about my genetic mutation and in, in we went from eating you know, not, we, I wouldn't say we had a really unhealthy diet, but we definitely ate more of like a standard American South Asian diet. And we transitioned to a vegetarian diet and then ultimately a, a plant, plant-based diet. And just within that time, you know, he lost the 20 pounds, his blood pressure got normal, his cholesterol got normal. And that was without addressing any of the other things like, like movement and stress and all the other issues that, you know, he definitely needed to address. Um, you know, my mom lost like 30 pounds in a year, just again, from changing the way she was eating and being more mindful. And so it's just the ripple effect is my favorite when you would adopt positive lifestyle habits. Uh, yes. And let's, we'll talk about some of those in a second. I just want to finish up on the, you talk a lot about your real life experience as a patient, as well as being a, a physician and a family member supporting people. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what the aha moments were for you when you're looking after people that are in their last you know, days to weeks? What are some of the epiphanies or lessons that you've learned from that? And then, then being a patient yourself, what have you learned from those experiences? I mean, I think, you know, as a palliative care physician and also a family member, I you know, I've witnessed kind of the worst case scenarios, I think, of, of disease and serious illness, um, you know, chronic pain, uh, anxiety, suffering, uh, loss of independence and death. And I, I think for, for me, the biggest takeaways and lessons that I've learned from my patients are, you know, I, I, wish, I, I wish I spent more time loving you know, I wish I spent more time with my family. I wish I spent more time taking care of my body. Um, I wish I was more authentic to myself and my passions and, and the things that made me happy as opposed to doing things that other people wanted me to do. Um, and really just ultimately, I wish I lived more, you know? So I, I think the beauty that I'm able to take away from my patients' experiences and their lessons is just that, you know, today is a new day. And today I, and everyone that I share these stories with has the opportunity to love and to learn and to grow, to be alive. And just to be able to do the things that we wanna do because we, we're, we're given this gift of life. You know, oftentimes I think we get caught up in day-to-day -day craziness, right? And then we just kind of, expect that we're going to wake up tomorrow um, but when you're around people who are nearing the end of their their physical life here 
you realize what a gift it is just to be able to take a deep breath or what a gift it is just to be able to walk yourself to the bathroom um you know and and that that was my pivotal moment um you know i after my surgeries i i was the perfect candidate 32 no past medical history um and i ended up having a major complication after my surgeries uh it was the scariest time of my life i i went in to the hospital by myself because we were at the height of COVID, so I didn't have anyone there. And um, sorry, that's okay. No, but this is real. You know, it's real for everybody that's listening. This is what every this is this is everyone's human experience. You know, that's why we have these podcasts. That because some people don't have anyone that understands what they're going through at all. And so it's really nice that you share that these stories to. It's, it's beautiful because you're just like all of us, you know, we're all the same in some way. Oh, for sure. Um, it's scary. I, it's very scary. And um, I ended up having to go back to the OR, had another surgery. Um, and luckily then they were able to let my husband in. But after I got home, I was so debilitated. I, I was shocked at how week I got so quickly um and granted you know I had two drains on the side I had had two surgeries a top surgery and a bottom surgery at the same time so I really needed assistance with everything um you know walking to the bathroom showering like everything my husband was like my caregiver basically for the first couple of weeks and there was this one day where you know and I've shared this story so many times because this this was it this was the moment for me and I was sitting in the recliner and everybody was downstairs I didn't have my phone and I had to go to the bathroom so bad and it was getting dark outside and I just, you know, I, I basically just had to wait until my husband came upstairs and he came upstairs and I'm sitting in the dark and, you know, sitting there crying and, um, and he just didn't know what to say or do at that point. But like in that moment when I was sitting there in the dark, I remembered like, you know, this is what my patients feel like you know, to be dependent for your most basic needs, right? Like the strongest force of being a human being is like our need for autonomy, to be independent, to be able to care for our, our most basic things, right? And and so for me, it was like, wow, I am never taking this for granted again, you know? Like the minute my doctor cleared me for surgery, and this is where the second part of my lifestyle transformation happened, is the minute because at first I was really just focused on transitioning my diet and all of that, but the lifestyle piece with movement and managing my stress and my mindset and my emotions really happened that day when I committed that as soon as my doctor clears me for movement, which was eight weeks after surgery, I got on my Peloton. And ever since then, I've essentially woken up almost almost every day for about 18 months, I was good to about 5 a.m. practicing my gratitude, moving my body, breathing, you know, and doing whatever I needed to do to give my body what it needed, fill the cup, right, before I started my day. Um, and then grace, so much grace. <laughs> that was the biggest, 
biggest thing I've learned in the past year of like trying to navigate life and also doing all the things that I got accustomed to doing for myself is realizing that it's not about perfection, right? So if life is busy, it's okay, you know, do what you can. Um, and then when life is more mundane again, then you get back on and it's, you know, you're, it's just all about consistency and showing up for yourself and doing whatever it is you can in the season that you're in. Amazing story. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. Your, you mentioned a few things about um, what you've learned and experiences, and that is exactly what Dr. Ridiger in his book talks about as well. And some of these people that turned themselves around from end stage cancer and and went to healing places, he was trying to look at the medical evidence and say, did they really do spontaneous healing or not? And followed them for 50, 20 years. And the thing that he got shocked by, which you won't be shocked by now, but you would have been as a doctor, is that was, and you said it, this authentic self piece was the bit that people really changed when they had knowing they had no time left. They said, right, I'm just going to do exactly what I wanted to do. And they and you talked about this person going to a heal to change what they're eating lifestyle-wise, but it was also probably what they wanted to do anyway. And he talked about that. I think like I said earlier, I think it's just what I've learned is that if you don't plan out your life, someone else is gonna plan it for you. And, you know, when you're 90 years old and sitting in that rocking chair, looking back at your life, will you be able to say, you know, yes, the hard days were hard, but man, the good days were so good because I lived life on my own terms. Yes, I failed, but I learned and I grew and I was true to myself. I did all the things that I wanted to do as opposed to getting to that age and looking back and having so many regrets. And that, unfortunately, I feel like most commonly is what we see. Um, you know, people have so many regrets of the things that they didn't do. Um, is it, they were is it things they didn't do or is it people that, is it about relationships or is it about things or is it a common thing? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of everything. I think it's, you know, in today's culture where our, our productivity uh, is linked directly to our success. And we think that if we work, 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 we're ultimately going to achieve this happiness that exists somewhere at the top of the ladder, the corporate ladder, you know, as opposed to, you know, looking at what we have in our life right now you know, and finding what we're grateful for and finding, you know, all the abundance in our life that actually is the happiness. People are always chasing things and looking for happiness when if they actually look around them, they already have what they need. Um, and in many cases, what they want, right? Like at the end of people's lives, they're always talking about, I wish I had spent more time with my family, right? Like, and I was telling my husband this last night, um, the three things that if, if there was like a common theme of what people say they want the end of their life to look like, it's I want to be home, I want to be my, with my family, and I don't want to be in pain. And, you know, 
we watched this in, I don't know, you're from Australia, so maybe you're familiar. We just finished this uh, docu-series on Disney Plus called Limitless with Chris Hemsworth. Absolutely phenomenal. So he finds out that he carries a genetic mutation that increases his risk of Alzheimer's disease by eight to 10 times. So he's looking into how can he optimize his lifestyle to live as long as he can with the best quality of life. But the last episode is all about the acceptance of death um, and kind of making meaning of life and focusing on the things that are most important. Um, and that's ultimately what he says. He was like, you know, those three things I said, being at home, being with loved ones and not being in pain. He's like, that's just like every other Sunday. So we all have access to that right now. Like that doesn't just have to be our dying wish. Like if we paid more attention, most of us, you know, are home. We're surrounded by our children and our spouse and our loved ones. And most of us, you know, have the ability to do something to improve our quality of life and not be in pain or suffer. And that is our lifestyle, right? So I think that's the beauty of it. Like you don't have to wait till the end of your life like most people to have that wish. We can just be more in tune to it and realize that we all have access to that right now. This is such That's what I made of that show. I thought it was so fascinating. <laughs> oh yeah, it's, it is. And and I talk about this a lot too. And I see posts around fast forward living and longevity and and all of these things about all these things that you can do to extend your life. And I love this idea of actually understanding what does matter at the end of your life and bringing it forward to your life rather than focusing on just doing all of this stuff like to extend your life, not knowing if it will. Right. And I, I often comment on people's posts because it's all over LinkedIn, all of these things around longevity, which is great. But I, I put up there and say, I was just at a memorial for my friend who passed from metastatic breast cancer at 57. Um, and her parents are octogenarians in their 80s, burying their three daughters. And they lived a great life. But they would have loved to be us in, that, in the audience, knowing we could take another breath just all the things you just said. Um, and Fiona, her name is, and this is in dedication to her, this podcast, Fiona Vanderporten um, and her mm -hmm. family and her sisters. Um, they, like she put up on Facebook because she was a very big Facebook um, person and she had friends all over the world. And, yeah. and she went clink, clink, see you in heaven to her sisters a few hours before she passed. And she was surrounded by her five sons for that last 24 hours. And she posted, these have been the last, the best 24 hours of my life. Mm -hmm. And so I look at that. And, and so this, this concept around you already have it and to not take it for granted and to really lean into that is probably the greatest longevity pill you can ever give yourself. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, and that's the one certainty that we all have, right? And so if we're living every day to the fullest and have faith over fear of all the things that are constantly trying to enter our mind, telling us we should be scared all the time, if we, you know, step into abundance and love and just acceptance that it, that time is going to come for everybody. And so you know, people always say, and I've said it too, like life is short, but life is actually not short if you live every day, right? 
exactly it doesn't it's not necessarily the numbers it's the day mm. and that's exactly what I think longevity is as well exactly it's in the moment it's not in the extension um so what uh, the other thing I want to talk to you about is um what outcomes have you seen now as you're moving this kind of focus on lifestyle medicine as well as palliative care in awakening wellness as a as an approach to treating disease what have you come to see of some of the outcomes of that work you're doing so right now as i mentioned I'm, I'm i'm starting to work with my my leadership team and and my health system to really find a way to proactively include lifestyle medicine for our um upstream palliative care patients so we'll see how that turns out next year um, if we get that project going but i actually after going through everything i went through last year i actually um started up a coaching um kind of platform for women at high risk of cancer we're talking about how passionate you are about empowering and guiding women particularly those at risk for serious illness on the powerful impact of positive lifestyle changes that can improve their quality of life and longevity do you want to talk a little bit about what you're doing in this space so yes yeah, so um Last year, I um, launched Coach Simran MD, um, which is essentially a platform. Um, I launched for women at high risk of cancer with or without genetic mutations or anyone really in the cancer space um, to empower them to use um, lifestyle habits and optimizing their mindset to help them regain their autonomy and their confidence and, and their well-being. Um, and I created this platform essentially for myself as that 26-year-old girl who, or woman rather, who um, just wanted to be able to control what she could to reduce her risk of cancer. Um, so that that's kind of you know my passion project right now. And it's it's been incredible to support, you know, so many women um, to be able to just not only reduce their long-term risk of cancer, but just improve their everyday quality of life. Um, and I talked about that ripple effect. I mean, that's just my favorite when I hear from people that not only are they seeing great positive changes in their everyday life, but their loved ones are as well. Um, so that's what I'm working on right now. I hope in the near future, I can also, you know, launch that lifestyle program for, for my, you know, palliative care population. Um, so it's definitely something that's in works and I'm very excited about it. Do you mind telling us a little, a few tips that um, you give people that come to you about positive lifestyle factors that they may not be aware of? Um, I think, I think um, wellness is a mindset. So I think, you know, before, yeah, I, I think, and that's what I realized, right? Like before, and I'm saying this as somebody who suffered from pretty severe undiagnosed anxiety and panic attacks um, when I first found out about this mutation while caring for young people dying from cancer. Um, I, I didn't really have the tools that I have now. Um, and so that's what I learned is that, you know, before you can make any change, you have to address your mindset. And what I've learned is that you have the power, we have the power to really rise above any situation that life throws at us because 
we always have the ability to choose what we're focusing on, right? Instead of focusing on the whole staircase, focus on the first step that you need to take. Um, we can change the meaning that we're giving to things, right? So instead of saying, why is this happening to me? Say, how is this happening for me? Um, or what can I learn from this? Um, or how can this make my life better? You know, so the questions you're asking yourself matter. Um, and then kind of like what I said, you know, just committing, you know, making, choosing decisions and then following them with committed action, right? So committing to yourself and, and rephrasing things like for myself, it was always like self-care is selfish. But that day when I was sitting in the recliner in the dark, it became self-care is self-preservation, right? So affirmations are incredibly powerful um, to, to really reframe your mindset. Um, and so then, you know, once you've kind of conquered the mindset, right, what you're focusing on, the words and the language that you're using and, and, and then the decisions um, that you're, you're making, then, then comes the lifestyle piece, right? And for me, what I've learned, and I wish I learned this in medical school, is that food is medicine, lifestyle is medicine, you know, sleep is medicine, you know, as a palliative care physician, I can tell you that lifestyle is probably the most powerful medicine that's ever existed, especially for your quality of life, um, you know, and forget of longevity, which it is, but at least your quality of life. So, if someone is just starting and wants to make some sort of change, I would say start with one area of your lifestyle, right? Identify the first step, you know, forget the whole staircase um, and, and set simple goals. And I usually like to use a SMART acronym, right? So specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, time specific. Um, and, and those are called SMART goals. And, and they're very uh, a great way to chunk down your your goals, um, and then as you're you're achieving these small micro goals, you're going to continue to build on them, and then you'll be able to get to your ultimate you know three month vision or your one year vision or goal, whatever it may be. Um, and I, I think the most powerful piece when it comes to lifestyle is accountability. Um, and I think there's a statistic on that too. It's like, you know, when it comes to lifestyle change, it's like 99% of it is accountability. Um, you know, holding yourself accountable to something or to someone particularly um, has been shown to be very powerful in helping people to achieve the outcomes that they want to achieve. Um, so whether that's like a community group or a friend or actually getting a coach, um, those are all ways to, to get you closer to where you want to be. And um, Simran, I, I love that. I think the mindset piece is the hardest piece for sure, because we have to overcome, you know, we have to overcome generations of beliefs, don't we? Because we grew up in a whole family, uh, a society, community of beliefs around food and Absolutely. lifestyle. And so you don't just overcome generations of a belief overnight. And that's why I love your idea of this micro steps for people to empower mm -hmm. themselves to be able to shift, shift their belief and mindset a little bit, to become a bit more open-minded because often we shut down, don't we? When someone says, oh, you shouldn't eat sugar, for example, that's mm -hmm. as in one example, that's a big one where people go, well, I really like mm -hmm. sugar. <laughs> I'm not going to give up sugar, right. for example, or alcohol or you name it. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. You, I mean, you have to harness that internal motivation, right? So the, if you know your why, the how will come later, right? So it, the how there's tons of resources online, but you really need to figure out the why, like, why am I doing this? Why do I want this? What is this going to give me versus what's this going to cost me if I don't change? Um, and then also, you know, what, like, what's holding me back? Like what beliefs are holding me back? right? Like you said. So those are all kind of the steps that we need to take before we can go into being successful and having a sustainable new lifestyle that's serving us and working for us and, you know, reducing our disease risk and so on and so forth. My, my last two questions relate to care, caring people around you. Um, people are trying to take care of people in need um, that have lost some of their dependence what sort of advice do you give to the people sitting around the bed to how, to, how, how can you help um, people feel better, the ones that have lost their independence? I find that that's a really difficult step for family members. Like how do you, what are some of your best advice there? I think some of the best ways that we can be there for each other is simply through our presence and our empathy. Um, you know, you'll never really be able to take someone's pain away, but you can certainly ease their pain by just being present. And what I've learned from some of my patients is that, you know, sometimes just having someone sit next to you and hold your hand um, without even saying anything is so extremely powerful. Um, so just, you know, don't underestimate your presence. Like we're always focusing on like, what can I do? What can I do? like, you know, sometimes it's just be you and be there, um, and listen, listening is an extremely powerful yet underutilized skill that we all have. Um, and then above and beyond that, I think, you know, and I tell patients this all the time, um, is that, you know, let your caregivers be there for you. It takes a tribe to get through something like a serious illness and um, be specific um, with how they can help. Because I think that that's the part that is so difficult as a caregiver is like, you know, there's so many things that can be done and then you kind of get stuck in the paralysis of analysis of what should I do? So if you just ask specifically, like, what can I do? Can I bring you meals? Can I take the kids? Can I, you know, be specific? Um, and then that usually makes it um, a little bit easier, I think, on everybody. I, I do like the being present and listen. And I think that goes not mm -hmm. just to people that are lost their dependence. I think that goes to every person in life. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, That's if we just all listened a little bit more, right? It's so hard to do when we, yeah, when we get tied up in our lives. Um, I think, yeah, well, we're also always, I think, like, talking with our own internal dialogue. Um, so just again, coming, bringing it back to the mindfulness and being present in the moment and with the person that you're with, putting away the phone, turning off the TV, all that shutting out the noise so that you can listen truly is something we could all work on. Uh, thank you so much for your time. And um, we will put the links to your website um, in the notes uh, on the podcast link and people can find you there and your work is incredible uh amazing talent i can't believe how many certifications and study you have done 
in your life. It's really amazing for me to see that and for the listeners to be able to hear your voice and get some advice from you for free, which is really nice. I appreciate Um, you're so kind. Thank you so much. I, you know, it's just, it's all about sharing your stories um, it is. It is. and you just don't know who's listening you you really don't um, I know that this goes to about 2,300 different cities now so wow. and, and for people that don't get access to um, you know expertise to be honest um, they don't have the resources or they don't necessarily have the time to wait to get access to expertise so even one little thing mm-hmm. like maybe that they heard from you um, could just really save somebody. And that's what we're all about. Absolutely. That's what I believe. I believe that as we all share our stories, even one person out there listening who, who hears the one thing they needed to hear, it could go on to change the trajectory of their life. Um, That's how it did. It did for me. So I, I know, and that's what that's to me, that's what life is all about. So it's, it's a beautiful thing. And I appreciate you with this podcast and all the things that you're doing to serve your community. Well, thank you. And we look forward to hearing about what you managed to achieve in lifestyle medicine intersection with medical practice. I think that's a really game changer. And I'm really not, I, I didn't get to ask you this, but I still don't understand why this is not 101 of medical school. <laughs> you know what? baby steps. We're definitely getting there. Um, If I'm not sure if you're familiar or if um, your listeners are, but I would go check out the uh, American uh, College of Lifestyle Medicine. Um, That's who I have my board certification through Um, ACLM. They are doing incredible things um, and seeding medical schools and residency programs throughout America and hopefully one day internationally. So I think it's coming. Um, I think that's what the pandemic COVID showed us that this is what needs to change um, for so many reasons. It starts with our lifestyle. So I, I think it's coming. You know, many of us didn't get it, but it's coming in in the future of of medicine. And as they say, paradigm shifts take and rewriting te- textbooks takes like twenty or thirty years. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So one well, step at a time. Thank you for being part of that change. Oh, thank you too. Yeah, you're doing the same work, getting the word out. Thank you for coming on the Thriving Minds podcast. <laughs>